Welcome to episode 142. Tell me where to turn. You can find me on Twitter at Tommy2 underscore zero. Find me at Glenn3 underscore 11. And you can find me at Point Break underscore Dave. We are reeling from the news that the NBA has just placed the season on hold and wondering what impact this will have on our fantasy teams. <laughs> there's that and there's... I bet a lot of NBA. So this takes away a lot of my entertainment. You can only place so many bets on the coronavirus, and I have several. Give it all back. So <laughs> the player that uh, tested positive was uh, Rudy Gobert, who oh. was a, a French NBA player. So Trump was a little late on this uh, keeping the Euros out of the U.S. policy that he put in place tonight. Well, you know who has a trip booked to London in two weeks? UK doesn't apply. I know. You're good. I'm still going. I'm very surprised your company hasn't pulled the plug on this because my company's pulled the plug on all travel. Yeah, mine too, unless it's just absolutely necessary. Amen. If you cancel travel, then Corona wins. Does, Does that apply? So you're, I mean, are you, are you really, is it business critical that you go, are you basically just going there to screw around? Oh, it's completely just going to screw around. Man, I'm going to remember this episode 142. We're going to look back on this and go, man, but aren't you also the one that claimed that you could get and recover from coronavirus in under eight hours? Yes. (laughs) And I stand by that. I think that's very possible because uh, there's the high possibility otherwise young healthy individual that um it's essentially the common cold exactly and i actually i haven't got the labs back yet but i went for my yearly blood work physical which always comes back primo just elite athlete levels so i actually get that back i guess the friday and then i go to london the very next day so it'll be a perfect scenario if this man is in perfect health what happens are you gonna you gonna walk into the are you flying into heathrow i guess i believe so yes are you gonna walk out of there slowly with the rick flair robe on as everyone's got their covid mask on and you're just breathing in as much air as you can i'm gonna well, first, I'm going to um, like to flying what we call first class on British Airways, <laughs> sir. God, not back there. And, God, not back the, there there's and, affluence on this guy. And he doesn't think not, COVID can touch him. It's unbelievable. No, that only happens to people that fly economy. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to Conor McGregor off that plane and say, come at me, Corona. <laughs> Man, the... the there is so much that we're going to have to revisit here in a couple of weeks when we're all gathered together at the graveside. Yeah, I was going to say episode like 209, remembering Dave's funeral. <laughs> I got. Nah, I think you'll. Be, I think you'll be okay. I got an image today from a friend here in town that was at the grocery store, and it completely picked through toilet paper shelves, barren except for the quilted northern. 
So what do people Yankees, have against yeah. what do people have against quilted North? <laughs> I mean, I realize we're in the South, but I mean, come on. Can I Man. tell you guys right now, and we can keep this so there won't be any issues at my funeral. When the time comes, I want both of you to take chairs and basically do what McIntyre did to the cage on Raw <laughs> and just demolish the casket. <laughs> In the large mechanical spider inside the casket. Yes. Man. So, yeah, the uh, the corona has claimed several victims over the last couple of weeks. We also had uh, some other tragedy, uh, domestic tragedy, not within a household, meaning just within the country, near uh, Mr. Tommy 2 underscore zero. Yes, and you can add this to the list of significant events that I slipped through. (laughs) Wow. Not proud to say, but I, uh, I was awoken briefly in the middle of the night. Hale didn't hear the sirens, didn't check my phone, went back to sleep and woke up the next morning and discovered that not very far from our home, massive devastation. Man. It's worst case scenario, middle of the night tornado. I did something that I have never done before, which is I actually went down and volunteered in the disaster zone. Oh, nice. And let me tell you something. I have long made fun of something that I participated in, and now that I've done it, have to say it actually makes sense. So, Talking to minorities? (laughs) Have you ever noticed when you see these... Is everybody okay? That sounded like a <laughs> what shot. What just happened? That sounded like a gunshot. Uh, I think it's the ice maker, maybe. Oh, okay. Okay. We'll just... see if all of a sudden Dave just slowly leans forward. <laughs> Save all of those thoughts for about 45 to 50 minutes from now. Okay. Hold as the yeah, single we'll... gunshot okay. causes somebody to slump forward. <laughs> you see on TV when they show these videos of disaster relief and they have the, just the big line of people and they're just passing boxes or materials just down the line like one person to the next to the next to the next and I've always looked at that and I was like that is just so cheesy looking and so cheap and like there's got to be a better way to do it now that I've participated in it that is actually the best way to do things it's unbelievable the just assembly line method the assembly line of lining yeah. up like a hundred people in a row and we were we were moving supplies from one location to another, and when we, when we got to the second location, they just they had a mountain of pallets of water and gallon jugs of water and, and just all kinds of, you know, fairly heavy items. And when we started, we were grabbing a couple and then walking them, you know, several hundred feet inside and stacking them. And then as more people arrived, the chain formed, the No Way Jose chain. <laughs> And all of a sudden, I'm noticing, like, we're moving way faster. Nobody's getting tired. Everybody's, you know, where before, you know, you grab two or three cases of water. You'd walk them inside. You're like, man, this is going to break my back. Next thing you know, we're just taking a huge dent out of this pile of supplies. It was amazing. Good community. Good community building time. When you say it, it works and it's actually the best way to move things, you're excluding, like, any kind of cart or motorized vehicle or the hundred other much better ways to move things. Yes. If, if you have 
if you have no other technology yeah. in 50 people, that is the best way to unload a big pile of heavy items. Yeah, so if, if you're recreating like 1832, it is, it's the best way to go. Absolutely. Gotcha. So, um, so we have corona victims, we have tornado victims. It's been a couple weeks since we've been together. You know who else, who else died since then? The renegades. Mm. They died twice, and mm. I think I, 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 they're in trouble, boys. Two and three. Dave is like they got to win out, right? They have to win out <laughs> to win the. They bet. could lose one more push. and push. Okay. Is this a uh, is this time to have the conversation that maybe Stoops really isn't the right fit here? That maybe he's not going to be able to win the big one. Well, you know, as unimpressive as Landry Jones was, he was far better than uh, far better than the backup who's played two complete games at this point, and in eight quarters they've put up a whopping fifteen points with him at quarterback, and that's not good. Is Thinking ahead to next season, is there any chance they sign Dak? <laughs> There's always a chance. So we go back two weeks. They were last time we recorded. They were getting ready to play the Roughnecks, and if you remember, the prediction was 28-27, uh, Renegades win. So I'm at the game. Roughnecks get out to a lead at the end. Inside of like two minutes, it's 27 to 20. And the Renegades have the ball at the three-yard line. And I'm just looking around like, they're going to score here and then go for two. And I am literally a god. <laughs> like, it was all coming together. And then they fumbled. And then it all fell apart that night and the next week as well. So, right now in the in the Glenn Power rankings, uh, I've still got the Roughnecks at number one. St. Louis, two. Uh, the defenders at three, the guardians who were left for dead two weeks ago, all the way up to number four. Unbelievable. What wow. a turnaround. Uh, the wildcats at five, the vipers at six, the renegades at seven and the Seattle dragons who are one in four and they can't even play their games in front of fans anymore because of Corona are in dead last. It's well, a tough time to be a renegades fan. Well, speaking of being a God, Maybe it's time. My, uh, maybe it's time. Tall to, glass of Kool Aid, right here. Maybe it's time to get into what we're here to talk about. So yes, I know I lost the Super Bowl bet again, and I yes I realized it wasn't close. And of the final four teams, I only had one. I realize all of that. We you had some options by the first weekend. Yes, the pretty much after the second game was played, it was over. I realize all of that. But I'm actually glad I lost because the documentary that I got to watch, suggested by Glenn, three-hour, 1980 miniseries, originally aired on CBS, coverage of the 1978 Jonestown Massacre, the Guyana Tragedy, the story of Jim Jones, cult leader. Turning it around in two years is pretty impressive, too. You know, usually when they have those big tragedies like Waco, it takes them a decade or more to get the documentary out. CBS was on Indeed. top of things. So, Glenn, I understand you have also watched this. I did. This really gave me just a good excuse 
to watch it. It's something I've intended to watch for a while. And last year I read a book about this, uh, or his basically Jim Jones's life. And then up to the Jonestown massacre, obviously. Um, and I've wanted to watch this documentary. So when I suggested something that I just wanted you to watch to make it really awkward, and then that didn't quite work out, I was like, well, I'm just going to suggest something that I think you should watch and it'll give me an excuse to watch it as well. But yeah, I, I think put together in two years, it was based on uh, some of the accounts of people that um, I think it's a combination of those that were in the people's temple and got out. And from those that actually survived, like they got out last minute or maybe they survived that day. Certainly don't make it seem like in the finale of the uh, film that anybody survived. So, it was, I mean, once we get to that part, we can talk yeah. about that. I'd there like to talk about where it differs from reality because I walked into this knowing nothing other than the generic line of drink the Kool-Aid. There was, there was no more knowledge of Jim Jones than that going into this for me. Well, let's just start. Uh, first off, you mentioned it was CBS did it, but I think this was in a day and age where that's where the big guns would be rolled out is on the network TV yeah, for I something mean, like this, even as opposed to a feature film. Yeah, I mean, made-for-TV movie has a certain stigma, so perhaps maybe maybe a, a slight step in back in quality from something that would have been in the theater, but CBS was the big big leagues back then, and were probably the uh, wide audience that viewed it would would um, would pale anything today because TV wasn't as fragmented back then. And I have to say, off the top, I mean, this was great. I, I was worried you were getting me into like some kind of a cheesy. But I, I was riveted from the get-go. The acting, I thought, for the most part, was great. There's a few moments we'll talk about. <laughs> Maybe it could have been better. Um, Powers Booth. Yeah. Absolutely spot on. I'm, I'm stunned that he didn't win numerous awards for his portrayal of Jim Jones. I think he won an Emmy, but I don't know if it's eligible for anything else back then. Well, it probably wasn't released in theaters. It should have been. Right. Uh, um, so Powers Booth, as... Dave may remember him as Cy from Deadwood, the competing tavern owner to Oh yes. Al Swearingen. So this was I in my head thought this was just purely a documentary. It was a scripted theatrical production. Oh, absolutely. This was and not only was it a scripted theatrical production, it it had some high level filmmaking because we had flashbacks, we had jumping back and forth in time, we had different character backstories that were explored. This was some fairly in depth filmmaking, and from what I could tell from the YouTube presentation, it was a two part miniseries because they do the way that it was presented on YouTube was just continuous, but there is a moment in the middle where the credits roll, so I'm assuming it was aired mm -hmm. over two nights. Yeah, it did you was. did you turn it off? Yeah, it's like, like well, uh, that didn't end the way I thought it was. A weird ending. <laughs> they all lived. <laughs> Nothing really happened. And also, maybe it's a different <laughs> Jim Jones. <laughs> this one goes on to own a car lot and compete with David McDavid. <laughs> and also, there were some interesting interesting phenomenons, which I want to talk about in context when we get there. But things that I noticed about 1980s filmmaking, where certain things that were so shocking and so over the top were just thrown in like nothing. And then other areas where today would be thought of as not shocking at all, they very clearly stopped short of showing or doing. And I thought I found that to be a really interesting just study of looking at a, you know, a point in time 
almost 40, well, I guess, yeah, exactly 40 years ago now that it's 2020, yeah. where things things that today would, would probably get a network never allowed to broadcast again by the FCC were just laissez-faire, and then other stuff that we would not even think twice about Oh, they cut out. They of very creatively bailed out of, which we will get to. I want to. So I do want to cover all those in context. Let's just start at the the beginning because it comes out firing from the first scene. So it comes out hard, not even knowing what I'm getting into. So immediately, I mean, just from the opening credits, I'm already loving the style because it's classic, you know, '80s production value. You know, it's it's not as slick and overproduced it's gritty and it opens with the guyana camp and they're in a white alert and people are running around there's sirens going off jim jones is on the microphone telling people to drink the kool-aid there's gunfire erupting he gets shot at one point and i'm like wow this is really a strange way to do this because they have done no setup and they're right here into this chaotic scene and then all of a sudden after he's shot he sits up and's like all right, guys, you did good. That was a drill. They're out there looking for us, and I had to know that I could trust you. And then I was going, a loyalty. It test. was a loyalty test. So it was all, all planned, obviously, and they were just shooting because they had what they did was they staged. They always had armed guards. They were up near the pavilions and stuff, and to, they were you know guarding to keep people out. It was under that assumption, but it was also to keep people in. So when they had somebody within the group during that test, they had somebody run away like they were trying to escape having to drink the Kool-Aid, and they fake shot them, and then Jim Jones fake took one to the chest. Took one right to the chest. Hold on. So, so the Kool-Aid flavor aid, the people knew that in this test, in their mind, obviously, it didn't happen this way, but they would die if they drank it. Yes. And we'll yeah. get we'll uh, we'll cover that in greater detail when we get to the end of the of the show. But at least in this portrayal, there was no sleight of hand going on. It was it was and well established. This was this was a this wasn't the final event. This was just this, a was, test. this was a test. This they just test. had this is a movie Kool-Aid, making device to get you hooked. They, they just had Kool Aid on hand at all times, all 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 the time, and they did these in the in the weeks and days leading up to the final day, just as. They didn't always do the poison thing, but he would do the the whatever it was, the white whatever. Just in the middle of the night, the alarms would go off. It was just a test for everybody to be on alert and ready. And actually, he did. They didn't cover this in the miniseries, but I think when they were still in California and hadn't gone to Guyana yet, they did the same thing. And uh, one of the services in California, he passed out a bunch of stuff, had them drink it, drink it, and then told them it was poison just to see how they would react. Like with no other context or preparation or anything. And they were just basically, they just, the, the people that hung around just trusted him. And whatever his decision was, was the right thing. And if that was, they all needed to die, they all needed to die. Okay, there so back go. to the miniseries. <laughs> and that is episode 142. Thank you, Glenn. <laughs> the, uh, the movie making is interesting. So they, after they go through the white alert, they show a guy that is a congressman who we'll meet in greater detail later. 
And he's at the airport with a group of concerned family members, and they're talking about how they're heading to Guyana to figure out what's going on with the cult that's there. And they kind of quick at that scene, and then they go right back to Jim Jones, who you've just seen in the, pri- the previous white alert scene, and he's, it's a dream sequence, but they get into it in a really weird way because he's sitting in a chair wearing sunglasses, so you can't tell that he's sleeping. So like the first rule of a dream sequence is you're supposed to realize the person's asleep. So he's laying in the chair and there's a lady like shaking it like, Jim, Jim. Well, he's asleep because then it immediately goes fuzzy and cuts to his childhood. But at the time I'm watching, I'm like, well, why is he sitting there being despondent? Well, no, it's a dream sequence. So it shows him as a, uh, it shows him as a kid. And boy, this kid was a piece of work. I mean, I'm talking young, like six, seven, eight years old. And he's there with all of his little friends and he's got his Bible, and he's doing a burial of some animal that they've got in a shoebox. It looks like a you know rodent of some point, some kind, or a bird or something. It's hard to tell. But he's preaching over this animal that he's burying out in the woods with all of his friends, and they're getting restless and wanting to go. And he's demanding that they show res- the proper respect. And he's got his little kid suit on, and he's all dressed up. And then it shows him at home after that, and his home life is obviously not going very well. His dad seems to be a little bit off his rocker. Very super racist. Very extremely racist. Yeah, he may have been literally in the KKK. Yes. And very abusive to Jim verbally, and then um, there's there's just a lot of different episodes of abuse between the husband and the wife and then Jim and the husband. And it shows that they have this neighbor next door. Who's like an older lady that he would sneak out and run over to. And she was the one that was giving him all of his Bible education. So she's like Mm. the kind of shady grandmother, but was telling him Bible stories that then he was going around and regurgitating as he, uh, as he grew up as the seven and eight year old pretend preacher. Yeah, and he was uh, described as a weird kid who was obsessed with religion and death, and he used to do those funerals for dead animals and stuff and make all of his friends, that the friends that he had, show up for it. And there was even one story that he stabbed a cat to death just to do the funeral. Hmm? So... <laughs> so indeed. So then it cuts back to the dream sequence, so we're establishing that he's still sleeping, but then it's now fast-forwarded in time, and he's older now. He's an adult, young adult, and he's working as an orderly in a hospital, and he's kind of harassing this nurse that he seems to know, and there's a little hanky-panky where he pulls her into the room, and she's like, oh, Jim, not here at work, and he's kind of establishing that he's definitely got some sexual things going on in his life that he's going to have a hard time keeping under under wraps. Yeah, not a lot of control there. But as it as it moves forward it shows that they do end up getting married and he gets the job as a pastor at a small town extre- extremely beaten down church that has about 10 people go into it. So when they you know are handing him the keys and and whoever had brought him in the pastor search committee they're talking about how they need him to reinvigorate the congregation. So he starts going out and working in the community to try to find people that he can invite to church. Well, his first stop is at the barber shop. He's getting a haircut. He's inviting the guy cutting his hair to church in this young... You ain't never met no Martin Luther King. 
<laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. A young African-American boy walks in, and this is the first moment where I'm like, whoa. During this scene, the young African-American boy is asking for a haircut, whoa. and they proceed to use that word no less than seven or eight times, just casually throwing it out during the scene. And I was shocked. And this is TV in 1980 that this was going on. And this I had no CBS. idea. Yeah. CBS. Goodness. And I had no idea, but my first thought was first, wow. And second, that Tommy, would, the first thing he was going to think was, I knew that was in there and this was the reason. Yeah. <laughs> he the only reason we're doing this. I had no idea. I was I was absolutely shocked. So as this episode continue or as this part of the dream sequence continues, Jim is basically going on a recruiting trip. He's uh, he's got the helicopter out. He's visiting families. He's shaking hands of five star recruits. He's meeting uh, prostitutes. He's uh, he's meeting the wheels off guy that runs a pet store. Who turns Randy out to, Quaid? Who turns out to be Randy Quaid? <laughs> <laughs> that really threw me off because because it's not at all like him. Like he's so young and so thin yeah. and like fairly normal acting. Yeah, but I still just saw him as cousin Eddie from National Lampoon's Vacation the whole time. So, did Jim Jones was he still able to? do his duties at the church or was he just constantly doing funerals at the pet <laughs> shop? <laughs> and Randy Quaid's like backstory is amazing because he's like inherited a pet shop from his deceased parent and he like hates animals, but he just, <laughs> I guess he just felt like he had to quit his regular job that he liked to go work at a pet store because he got, it was left to him, but it's failing miserably. So the whole point of this whole sequence is that Jim's now filled up this church he's been recruited to with with African Americans, with prostitutes, with pet store owners. <laughs> That's a bit of a reduction, but <laughs> and and the original core group of ten church members are not happy uh, at the oh. at the clientele. Very uh, very much so. Probably not too dissimilar from somebody walking into. Uh, the uh, service that Glenn attends and the looks so they would probably is, get. Oh yeah. That wouldn't be too appreciative. Is he, is he trying to lead these people into his crazy version of religion or is he under the Jim Ross? I just need a, a butt every 18 <laughs> inches. So it looks like my church is doing well. So, as this plays out, it his theology kind of devolves into the cult. So at this point, I'm not disagreeing with too much of what he's saying. He's preaching a very much love everybody type of gospel, and we need to treat everybody with dignity, but it, nothing, nothing too alarming like he's going to do here in about 30 minutes. Yeah, and this is the time where he, they're in Indiana. Correct, and in Indianapolis. He's, he's a big, big proponent of you know, the civil rights movement in that area and progress there. We had the scene that I think was coming up shortly where he went to the movie theater and said he wanted to buy all the tickets in the theater and they were more than happy to sell all 400 tickets to him. And then he invites a large group of, uh, it's exclusively black people. And then all of a sudden the theater's like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
you can't do that. Well, by that time, he was like, I forget what his role was, um, but he had like a political position in Indianapolis at that time. And he was like, I definitely have the power to do this because of that. He's like the human rights advocate or something like that for Indianapolis. Interesting. So where did he get all the money from? Just wait. Was he rich? Just wait. Okay, sorry. So right now the church is failing. I mean, they don't have a lot of money. And the original members are asking him to leave, and there's this very funny scene where they're having a meeting and somebody throws a dead dog through the window that's the (laughs) fakest-looking thing you've ever seen and then calls him a something lover. It's a term that also was said at the barbershop. Mm, and they're yeah, like, okay. they're like, yeah, buddy, we're going to have to go ahead and ask you to leave. So he starts strolling through the inner city of Indianapolis and gets the idea that, you know what, I'm just going to start my own church and my own religion right here with the people that, that I want to help. So it's predominantly African-American. And he's running very low on funds. So he needs to figure out a way to raise some money. So what does he do? He calls Cousin Eddie at the pet store. And they start going door to door selling monkeys from the pet store for thirty. Pet store had monkeys. Yeah, Yeah, for thirty-seven dollars a piece. So nineteen eighty small town Indiana pet store monkeys. No, I mean this is like nineteen sixty something. Yeah. Oh yeah, he he dies in seventy-eight. So this is probably early sixties. Yeah. Wow. So they get this kind of beaten down building and they start build, they start building it up and they're they're attracting a pretty big clientele. Well, he realizes pretty quick that a lot of these people because they're, you know, poor, maybe lower on the uh, you know, IQ scale that they're not maximizing their ability to get money from the government. So a lot of them aren't cashing their social security checks, they're not getting, you know, they're not getting these different gov- government funding programs. So he gets um, a lady that understands that to essentially set up a table get these people to sign documents and all of a sudden all of their money that they didn't even know they had coming to him is getting deposited into the church account and he's having them sign over their checks directly to the church. Mm. So, and I'm not familiar with his story at all. I'm assuming he's grown up into a pretty charismatic guy because it sounds like he was kind of a weird kid. Absolutely. No, he's... He's got this weird aura about him where people are just hanging on every word. Gotcha. And he's starting to realize, I think, at this point, the power that he has over people. He knows how to manipulate people. Because, I mean, he was you know, manipulating people, whether it was membership in, in the church or donations. But he's doing the same thing to, to, for political power and influence and gain just within the community as a whole. So he's not just fooling people who might be not all there or desperate or, you know, gullible. It's he's pulling the wool on everybody. Despite the fact that he's figured out a way to bilk some money out of people, it's not near enough. And Randy Quaid, who's now lost the pet store because they've gone bankrupt is functioning as his financial advisor. And he's telling him in all these scenes, he's like, look, man, we're, we're spending thousands more than we're, we're making. You know, the creditors are looking for it. There's a guy that's supplying their, their church with food that they hand out that's, that's over it and is demanding to be paid on the spot. But Jim Jones is just calmly like, don't worry. 
I'll I'll figure out a way to get us some more money. And as he's sitting in the uh, as he's sitting in the uh, um, office talking with Randy Quaid, he notices the newspaper and there's an article on the front page that it's touting a another cult. And I didn't catch the name of this cult. I didn't write it down. And he sees the uh, the picture of the guy that's leading it, and he decides to go pay him a visit. And this was one of my favorite scenes in the movie. So he's he's touring, um, I guess their campus. I don't know what you would call it. Their cult. cult they're they're kind of all dressed in their little flowing white, and this lady's telling him about. And he's asking like, "Well, how do you afford all this?" And she says. We don't need money here, you know. We all we all have given up everything we own, and we just we live off each other and the land, and we help each other. Well, then he gets in to meet the cult leader, and this guy, as he, as he and Jim Jones are sitting down to chat, I think they have some kind of a mutual realization that they're both in the same racket here. So this guy is opening up to him a little bit more about essentially saying you can you can bilk people in your cult for real estate you can just ask them for it and they'll give it to you because they believe you're god to which jim jones is kind of raising an eyebrow and then he asks the my favorite question of the show as he says to the other cult leader he says well what would advice would you give me if i told you that sometimes members of my flock tempt me tempt me sexually and he says well those people in your flock they're they're there to serve your needs and you just do whatever you need to and Jim Jones just kind of leans back in his chair and's like all right <laughs> i can do this he as well like all cult leaders <laughs> took on the burden of sex <laughs> <laughs> and then it cuts to the next scene which is a little bit of a montage of him really getting things rolling <clears throat> he has gone full brother love at this point white suit red shirt <laughs> Glasses. I mean, they. It, whatever Bruce Pritchard says, he's lying if he doesn't say Brother Love was a hundred percent based off of Jim Jones. It's it's ridiculous. <laughs> so yeah, the guy he went to see was Father Divine. Was his name? <laughs> oh, the guy okay. in the other cult. Thank you. And that what guy was the yeah, name of the cult. Where was it? Do we know any of that? That I don't remember. Where was their campus, as Tommy said? <laughs> well, this is all in, this is all still in Indiana, I think. Yeah, he didn't oh, seem like he it, traveled. It, if they did, they edited that out of the movie. But okay. yeah, he, he looked up to this guy and kind of modeled the way he led his group around the way that Father Divine did. But I think um, what he told Jim Jones was to find an enemy and make sure that your group, your congregation, knows who that enemy is. And it'll unify the group and then make them subservient to him because it's all a purpose against this common enemy, which m- most commonly I think he made it like the U.S. government. Yeah, the CIA specifically. CIA, FBI, and ultimately capitalism because he was a big-time communist slash socialist. Mm. During this brother love montage he is also doing staged healings at these events where he has people that are on his team or in his cult you know come in in wheelchairs with braces on their legs and in disguise to make them look older and he's having them stand up and walk i mean it's just it's so straight out of that video i sent you guys earlier today the brother (laughs) love healing video it's unbelievable yeah, and they they touched on that um, a little bit 
but they would I'm trying to think which ones they put in the miniseries, but there they had the lady that he allegedly cured of cancer. And I think he did it just by touching her within the miniseries. But in um in the staged healings they would have, they'd have somebody pretend that they have cancer and then he would literally remove something from them, which was usually like chicken guts or something like that. And he would pretend that that was the tumor that was inside of them. But just through the touching them or the faith healing, he would remove their cancer from their body. But you're talking 50 years ago, 55 years ago, people didn't, People they didn't know the stuff. ins and outs of cancer. No, they just believe, hey, he can do these, he can do these great things. And they would, uh, he had all kinds of spies that would pretend to be like they just showed up. This is their first time, and they would talk to other people that were there for the first time, and they would get really minute details about them. And then Jim Jones would go through these long, if you quote unquote, sermons, and in the middle of it, he would just point out that. Philip Rivers is here tonight and he's dealing with a real bad sore on his back, you know, something like that. And these people would be like, Oh my God, I just came here and sat on the back row. I only talked about, you know, only talked to a couple of people. How does he know that? How does he know all this stuff about me? And that's how he built up this, uh, just became this huge fiction figure to people. It's genius. Well, I mean, kind of, <laughs> well, let's, let's see where this goes. He, uh, but all of his, his stuff, I mean, essentially, he built his congregation by it was all a work. He was just doing these oh, he was things always working. To, man, not a bad idea, but he was very good on the mic <laughs> after one of the fake healing scenes, it shows him the first time having a sexual encounter, although very highly edited to not really show anything with a young staff member. And his wife walks in on him, and he basically pulls the uh, right out of the Koresh playbook of like, hey, I give everything to this congregation. I need something from them. And the wife pretty much goes along with like being okay with it, although I think her okay with it wanes later in the, uh, later in the miniseries. Things start getting a little more militant in the cult. He appoints a committee to hold his congregation accountable and he basically those people are there just to shake people down for money. So when the offering's going on, they're making sure that people are are maxing out what they're donating. Mm. So he was okay with the money that jingles, but would prefer the money that folds. Man, and and do not fall asleep in one of his services. Oh, yeah, just wait. We're getting there. Okay. Because. So, Go ahead. Oh, go no, ahead. no. So the, the next part of the movie is when he gets po- appointed to his city position in Indianapolis, and you have the movie theater scene that you talked about. But things start to go a little south in Indianapolis, and they feel like they need to get out of there because <clears throat> there's starting to become some pressure about some of their dealings. So they decide to move the cult, uh, the church, excuse me, to California, out in the Redwood area of California, out in the middle of nowhere. And... Do you know the reason why he moved him out there? I don't know the reason that... I, yeah, I'm just following along with the movie, so I don't know the real reason. So they they touched on it very briefly. They went to that movie theater, and they were showing either a movie or something about nuclear war. Right. And he told them that he had a vision and that there was going to be nuclear warfare, and he gave him like this specific date that 
you know, was foretold to him and they needed to get out of Indianapolis and go to Northern California because it would be the safest place for them to hunker down after the nuclear war hits. And that's how he convinced them to convinced them to do it. And they did. They loaded up on buses and they went. And when they get out there, he needs some construction work done, but they're out in the middle of nowhere. He's got this kind of beaten down construction foreman that's telling him that there's no good people there to work. And then a guy comes up right at that time, just perfect timing, and's like, hey, I'd like a job. And the construction foreman's very dismissive of this guy, and it's like, you couldn't work here, you're a junkie. And then, of course, the guy ends up passing out, and Jim Jones like, looks down, the guy's got track marks all over his arm, and he's like, I'm going to care for this young man. I'm going to nurse this man back to help. And they take they take him away, and they put him in one of the one of the places where they're staying. And, and Jim Jones is going to perfect um, is going to personally look after this young man. Well, this is the part that really started to blow my mind in the movie. So then he goes back to his house for a minute, and then he shoots up heroin. And this is the first time they've showed him using any drugs in the movie. But did did you know that he was a heroin user? Uh, yeah, he had a lot of things a lot of things going on. I mean, the, the you, sunglasses comes from the fact that he, you know, whether it was work with the People's Temple, the charity stuff, the travel on the buses all over the country, recruiting people and appearing at like revival type stuff, he was up all hours of the day. So he needed to be on amphetamines to stay up. Right. But and then, then he he'd, have to, come he'd down. have to take other stuff yeah. to bring him down so he could sleep at all. So basically his eyes were just completely bloodshot all the time. So he couldn't appear like that because that's obviously going to show something's wrong with them or, you know, something's going on. So he, he did what any of us would do. He just went straight sunglasses all the time. <laughs> so was Conrad Murray available for him or just wait, <laughs> just wait. I feel like Dave, having not seen any of this, is picking up on a lot of uh, a lot of plot points that are about to come his way. So they they kind of take a pause in the narrative of the movie from this story for a second. They flash back to Guyana present day or present day meaning 1978, and then they do a flashback to Clayton, who uh, is Randy Quaid's character. So it shows him later. This is post pet store, and he's working in the office, and he proposes to uh, another lady that's working in the office, an attractive young woman. And he, she says, you know, are you, are you, um, are you asking me to marry you? And he says, yeah. And he says, um, he says, I know that you're in love with Jim as all the other women in the cult are, and I'm okay with that. And she says, well, I'm glad because I wouldn't have it any other way. Mm. Well, then Jim walks in and there's this awkward thing where he says, Randy Quaid says to Jim, well, hey, I've just proposed to her. And Jim's like, you can kind of tell he's a little ticked off like Koresh was a few times in that Waco documentary. And he's like, all right. And then Randy Quaid walks out and the woman looks at Jim and she's like, I'm three months pregnant with your baby. <laughs> mm. And I think his immediate response was actually like, that's not my kid. Do I remember that right? No, he, uh, he didn't, he didn't no sell it. He, he, owned okay. it. he owned it. I think he was very proud of the fact that he had that over Randy Quaid, for sure. Then they go back to the California part where you've got the heroin guy passed out, and then, of course, his wife is also there who's smoking hot for risk-adjusted for 1970. (laughs) 
And Jim's walking with her through the woods, and he insists that he's given so much to help her brother that she needs to give something to him. And she's like, all right. So there's an encounter between those two that's not necessarily shown, but implied. And uh, as Jim's nursing this heroin guy back to life, and this is where I think the storytelling in the 70s kind of didn't do this movie any service. So they're showing Jim nursing this guy back to health, and I'm watching it, and I'm going, like, something seems a little weird here because he's, like, a little too handsy with the guy. And then there's, like, one scene where, like, he they both have their shirts off, but it's not, like, a sexual scene, but it's, like, why are they, like, in this bed with their shirts off, you know? But the guy's still, like, recovering from heroin, so I don't know. It's, like, well, maybe he's just sweaty and... You know, Jim didn't want to get sweat all over his shirt. Like, it just, it was weird how it was presented. But what they were doing, what I find out later is, no, no, they're saying that, that Jim, uh, Jim was a switch hitter. Like, if there was a left-handed pitcher in there, he might go up and bat right-handed. <laughs> he, he, uh, yeah, he, he had sex with all his bathers, whether they were carrying a bat or not. <laughs> So it was so they were soft playing that so much in the 1980 whatever film yes. that you weren't even sure. <laughs> no, I wasn't even sure until until later. There's a line of dialogue. So they're they, they've they've cut it, and this heroin guy was in bad shape. Well, now they've nursed him back to health. Well, his wife is working in the like communal cafeteria, and she sees him walk in, and and at first it's like you think that the point of the scene is that she's going to react to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's, you know, upright and he looks relatively well because, you know, he's last time I saw him, he was, you know, like near death. But then Jim kind of walks in and has his arm on his shoulder and then she turns to the other lady in the kitchen, African-American woman, and says says something and she's like, oh honey, don't worry, you know, he he has to, you know, he has needs that he gets from all of his flock or something like that. And I'm like, what? What they, that's what they're saying. Like they're they're going with the uh, they're going with the gay storyline, and it was just so so tastefully done that you almost missed it. <laughs> so Can this, you imagine people just clutching their pearls in 1980 when they when they see this? Oh, I can't even imagine. So this 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 woman, the, the wife of the heroin guy, who's now apparently the gay lover of Jim Jones, she's like. F this, we're getting out. And this is this is still in a time where they're, they're in California. So she she gets her husband and leaves. And uh, Jim has his people figure out where they are. And it shows a scene where they're sitting in their house. And uh, he uh, shows up and confronts them both. And then, again, they don't show it. But he forces he her. Yeah. Lovingly. He turns lovingly, and his lips are about a couple of inches away. They're about to kiss, and then he says, or it cuts to her, and she's just like, she has this horrified look, and there's, it's clearly implying that they're making out in front of her, which is amazing. But they didn't show any of it. It was all very well, he, tastefully he edited. He said, yeah, he turned, and before he went in, he kind of said something to her like, I can't remember if he said, I want you to see. Yeah, I think he said you need to stay around because I want you to see this. And then he, he went in for it, and then it panned back to her shocked face as they're mugging down. 
So then this is actually where part one of the miniseries ends. So it ends with him making a, a impassioned speech to his congregation, and then, uh, and then part one ends there. And he says, we never should have bought those go-karts. <laughs> <laughs> we'll pass them down to another group who will take care of them for us. So at this point, we're in California, though, right? We are. And then credits roll, part two starts, and now we're back in Guyana, 1978, and they're very rapidly prepping for the congressman's uh, arrival. So the commune there, they're painting the fences, they're trying to make it look reasonable, because they basically want this congressman to show up. They, they tease in the beginning and not see that anything seedy is going on there, like the white alert drills. And it also shows Jim Jones using heroin again, and it looks like his drug use has gotten pretty bad because he's almost despondent at this point. He's not, he's not making much sense. He's just, um, he's just all over the road. So one thing they didn't go into detail, I mean, they showed the people working the area that they cleared in the jungle, but they didn't really go into the detail of what it took. I mean, it was like months and months of the first group of people that went down there oh, I can't even to imagine. clear that. Yeah. And it was so the, the jungle was so like dense that there was like a couple of groups of natives that lived within there, but no other developed, no other area in Guyana, like stri- developed out into that area. Cause they couldn't clear the jungle. And I think the government there took however much money in agreement to let them have that land and stuff. But I th- they really thought, we just ripped all these people off because in a month they're going to give up and just go back home. But they, the group that was there, they would work from like 6 a.m. to 6 at night, just constantly. They give them like 30 minutes or an hour maybe as a break. And then at night, they would, if Jim Jones was there, they'd have to listen to him preach for hours on end. <laughs> or they'd have to do classes on socialism and all the other things that he wanted them to be educated on. Sleep was at a pretty minimum, and it was a pretty miserable life, especially at the uh, when they first got down there. So then they so so now we kind of jump back in time, and we're in the California era, and Jim's going on this like massive barnstorming bus tour, and it just it's just a montage of him just rallying up all kinds of people donations coming in there's money everywhere i mean it's it's just like he's kind of hit his peak of of ability to make uh to monetize what what's going on in the cult there's a great line during this bus tour where randy quaid leaves leans over they've got their baby on the bus and he tells jim that he's so happy that he's the father of his baby which what does that even mean <laughs> everybody's bought in they uh they fly to Guyana, um, and this is early on, and they're basically they're negotiating with the Guyanese officials, like what I did there, um, mm. about about the land that they want to buy for the cult. And he brings one of his young girls, and basically she's only there to like seduce the <laughs> the official into like giving him the land. So like he makes up this excuse of like, hey. Um, you know, I think we might need to go take a walk real fast. I'll leave you two here to discuss the details. And then there's like these, all this really terrible, like 80s sexual innuendo language where she's like, yes, I will give you access to all the details. <laughs> it's, it's like that on. And they're both a little bit sweaty. 
Oh, yeah, because it's Guyana. They don't have air conditioning there. No, no, not at all. It's amazing. Um, so then, uh, then, uh, they show up, they, they cut back to one of his healing services. And this is the funny one where he brings out like a, like a person approaches him before and is like, my mom's dying of cancer. Can you heal her? And instead of being like, yeah, man, you know, he's like, yeah, bring her to the service. So they wheel this lady in a hospital bed out there. And he like very roughly, like she's an old woman. He like very roughly grabs her head and he's like shaking her neck and he's like, come out of her cancer. And then he's like, she's healed. And everybody's like cheering. Well, the woman that's like her adult daughter, that's probably like in her fifties, like pulls him backstage and is just like, you got to get the full mop out for her. And she's like, you're God. And he's like, yes. And this is what I want from you. And then like immediately it's just implied again that he can't, and, keep, and she, he can't keep it under control, man. And she joins the people's temple. She yes, leaves. She's she ends in. up leaving her husband behind and, and she and her mom end up going to Guyana. Yes. Yes. It's unbelievable. Aboard, on the, climb his, aboard the death train. His cult is called the People's Temple. <laughs> the People's Temple. Hey, he delivered the oh People's my. Temple. There's. I've got a note later on uh, that. Yeah, but I didn't even think about that. There's a whole bit there with the the, the people's everything. Okay, so um, they're trying to build up like the basically the degeneration of the church and how crazy he's getting. So then they have the scene that that Glenn alluded to earlier, where a guy falls asleep during one of his services, and there's you know he has his security guard. So this lady grabs the guy, has him stand up in front of the church starts like slapping him in the face and and Jim Jones is demanding that this guy apologize and every time he does it he's like you're not sincere and they just keep beating him in front of everyone it's just it just to show like how insane this guy is yeah and i can't, they can't believe you know i'm watching that and i'm like how does that guy not defend himself no and the guy was a guy was a, a stout guy and he just takes it and so it, that there was a younger guy and a guy that ends up in Guyana towards the end. And he, he fell asleep in the service and what else did he do? Cause he did something else that his dad covered up for him. Remember? Right. So he, he had, he, he had also, um, he, he was working full time during the day and then working at the church and Jim Jones was making him paint. So he was like tired all the time cause he wasn't sleeping. And then they had beat him, Again, like they didn't show it where his back was all jacked up. And That's at that point, his dad is like, okay, I'm done with this. Like the mom, his mother and sister are totally enamored by the cult. And his dad's like, no, forget this. So he, um, he goes to the congressman. And then that's kind of the connection where you go, okay, this is how the congressman got involved because this guy's dad did it. Well, Jim's got a lot of spies in this city. So he finds out that this congressman's starting to look into some of his financial dealings. And he knows the only way the guy would know to look into it is if somebody tipped him off. He pretty quickly traces it back to this guy's dad and literally has the guy killed by, uh, by setting, which causes an explosion, but basically setting his place of business, which was a paint store, on fire. <laughs> and it and explodes while up. the guy's in there and blows him up. And then he, he, uh, he kind of feels the heat, uh, no pun intended at this point, because after the blow up and the, the you know, congressman was already investigating him, and then all of a sudden their witness is dead he realizes that he needs to accelerate his plan to get out of the country because he can feel the walls closing in. 
Yeah. So there was, I mean, there was all those things. There was, uh, the kid that he was claiming was his, that really wasn't, um, I, there became a custody issue that was reported, you know, within the U S especially once the kid, he had had him taken down there. Actually, Randy Quaid took the kid down there based on his orders and left him down there kind of under the promise that, Hey, you're going to be able to get him back. But once he had him down there, he was like, all right, well now he's, he's trapped. But, um, the, the U S was looking into that. There were tax issues. Uh, there were people who had left, other people that had left the group that were reporting to the congressman and other authorities as to what was going on as to the sexual abuse, the drug abuse, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So he, yeah, he was absolutely backed into a corner. Yeah. So they, they announced that they're going to take a thousand people with them to Guyana to start. And they've got a bigger congregation than that. Well, oddly enough, the poor kid who got beat, his mom and his sister are part of the thousand that are going. So now the guy whose dad they've blown up is being told that he needs to go. And he's like, ah, and, uh, he's like I don't think I'm going to go. Well, the mom and the sister are all in. And they're like, we're going. And he stays at, he stays at home. In another odd twist, that boy's name is Richard Jefferson. <laughs> yeah, and I think that was... They changed a lot of the names... Because I, I looked into so that they just today. They named them after NBA players. Is that what they did? <laughs> yeah. Um, so they didn't use many of the real names. Because I think Randy Quaid's character, the name was changed. Um, his wife, who had the kid with Jim Jones, it wasn't her real name. They changed some of them. So there really wasn't a Richard Jefferson. It was two different. I found it when I was looking in today. Because there were two uh, brothers, meaning related, that let the end get away. But they were the same... The same two, they, they, but they weren't the Jeffersons, though, which also seems to be mildly offensive. <laughs> so um, they go to the camp, and Jim's drug use is just getting out of control. And then after a while, they, they do some different scenes. Not a lot happens for a little bit in the movie of just them getting the camp ready and just showing how bad the life is. Well, then all of a sudden, a plane comes in, and here's Richard Jefferson. He's showed up. So he didn't go down with the initial wave, but now he's there and he's brought this beautiful young lady that he's just married with him and he wants him to meet his mom and his daughter. Well, before they even get to the camp, so they're still riding in on this like makeshift hayride thing that they have to get him from the airport to the camp. You see Jim Jones with his binoculars out and he's already <laughs> got it trained on this young girl, this, this young girl that's the wife of his. So when they go to sign up to get their bunk, the lady's like, oh yeah, so we're, we don't, bunk the married couples together here anymore they were like just married yeah too. and they're like you're gonna be going over here and then of course she goes over there somebody comes by and's like oh yes the father would like to see you now well she goes to see him she immediately gets drugged they don't show it again but implied there was some assault and then the uh, poor Richard Jefferson's like having breakfast the next morning and he sees his girl like stumble out and she's all like you know, drugged out of her mind. And he's like, what's wrong with you? And she's like, I don't know. Just, everything's great. And he's like really perplexed. Well, they're making him do forced labor with everybody else to like build the rest of the camp. So then he goes out to the camp. Well, there's a lot of other members of the community out there with him doing forced labor, including one guy that, you know, looks like he probably was part of the Barksdale crew at some point. And he's like, yo, dude, you know, uh, you know what's Whoa. going on. <laughs> 
you know what's going on with your girl here, right? And he's like, no, was, was she sick? And he's like, no, the father, man. And then when he kind of like has that oh no moment when he realizes what happened, like he just snaps, like flips out, and they have to put him in the solitary confinement, which is literally a coffin that's chained to like the ground, like they've buried you know the chain under the ground or whatever, so you can't move it, and the lids chained shut. And poor Richard mm. Jefferson is now in the coffin. Yeah, and he kept that poor girl drugged like constantly yes. from the time she got there. Did did you think it was a red flag when they get there and they're very welcoming and the whatever and they're like, yeah, just immediately, just need to check in. Be sure and give us your passports and all, everything yeah, you would ever routine, need to be able to get out. It's a routine governmental country. exercise. Don't don't worry about it. It's just, this is very normal. Everything's fine. We're gonna take all this away from you. So after, the, uh, after this Richard Jefferson thrown in the uh, solitary incident, Jim's speaking to the whole group, the whole thousand people, and he's like, hey, I've made the decision. I'm dissolving all marriages because they weren't performed in this church. They are no longer valid. And then he says, um, he says that he's going to like reassign everybody with the mate that he chooses for them. So this is very, uh, very Koreshian again. So one thing, uh, going back to the People's Temple name, uh, one of the reasons that he f- he fled himself to Guyana for for good was there was a guy who wasn't even the FBI. It was just some guy who, on his own, had independently been investigating uh, the People's Temple and then reporting a lot of the things that that Jim Jones was up to or the group as a whole. And uh, Jim Jones had his own spies that were trying to get stuff on this guy, so maybe he couldn't. You know, he could he could reverse the blackmail type of thing, maybe. But he also the People's Temple had their own newspaper newspaper, which was called the People's Forum. So they had a whole. I mean, they didn't take advantage. But did they have of, an eyebrow? That's the real question. They didn't. They didn't. Not the eyebrow. Not the elbow. I mean, they untapped resources here. Gone too soon. So Randy Quaid has bad news from back in the states. The uh, Jim's been kicked off of his housing commission role, which he had in California. The feds are all over the real estate work. He's in he's in some big trouble. And Randy Quaid is saying, you know what? You really need to go back to America and sort this out. And Jim's like, no, I'm good. I'm not. I'm not doing. I'm not doing any of it. And he's in bad shape. He's uh, he's obviously not well. Like all the drugs he's doing are paying. You know, really starting to really starting to affect his health. I mean, he's barely able to get around. He's half despondent, but he's got this army of drugged up women that are always like massaging his shoulders and fanning him. It's very odd scenes. And he's becoming like exceedingly paranoid about the CIA. He's, he's convinced they're listening to him, that they're hiding in the bushes, that they've infiltrated the camp and he won't stop uh, yammering on about it. And I think it's at this point that Randy Quaid and his wife decide, like, we got to get out. And he goes and calls the feds and, and like says, look, I was his finance guy. I'm his right-hand man. I'll tell you anything you want to know. You just got to come down here. And all I ask is you get my son out of this camp. What's the uh, phone situation in camp? They don't have a phone, but they have a walkie-talkie where he can communicate with people that are further away or some kind of two-way radio but there's no phones so you have to get to town to get a phone and you can't get to town unless you leave in one of their vehicles which jim controls 
But Randy was able to get out because he had a leadership position, and then he never came back with his wife. So he he's got uh, he's got a line to the congressman. He's ready to he's ready to um, to talk, and um, and then in the meantime, Richard Jefferson is trying to get some of the community rally together to help him bust his wife out. But they're a little skeptical about whether or not they'll be successful due to the armed guards. So the uh, David, who's the heroin guy, if you remember him back from California, he's. Uh, He's now become the de facto camp doctor, even though he never went to medical school. So he is the Conrad Murray of the camp, Dave, the uh, heroin yes. guy. And he's he's on a you know he's thinking that he's helping all these people because he's you know he's basically just giving them drugs uh, to kind of help. And um, he he uh, his wife is in the posse of the people that are now traveling to Guyana with the congressman because she wants her husband back and feels like he's been brainwashed. So the congressman arrives, and it's this very awkward where they've staged the entire camp to look like everything's great. He shows up, and he's actually kind of getting fooled by all this. Like He's kind of like, oh, I don't know what everybody was talking about. Everybody here seems really happy, and everything seems normal. And they, Throughout the whole show, whenever they're in Guyana, they're just showing how hard it is, and they're eating this just slop out of a bucket. Well, the night the congressman's there, they serve like this big meal, and they have like entertainment and people are singing and everything's just great. And he's totally buying into it, but he's the congressman has an aide that's with him that's a little bit more savvy to what's going on. And he notices that all the armed guards are kind of keeping certain people away from the camp. And he's like, hmm, maybe I'll go have a conversation with one of those guys. Well, he runs across Richard Jefferson, who uh, was dribbling a basketball and... He's like, hey, we can't talk right here, but do not leave camp without me. I want out of here. And the guy's like, okay, that's fine. So he leans over to the congressman and he's like, hey, you know, why don't you get up and while they're having this gathering and just let anybody know that if they want to leave with you tomorrow morning, like they're welcome to go. So the congressman gets up and he's like, hey, you know, thank you for your hospitality. I love what you're doing here. But if anybody does want to go, you know, we're leaving in the morning and you're welcome to go with me. So this kind of, you know, um, Jim Jones isn't selling it, but this is clearly a big problem because if people want out and go with this guy, they're going to blow the lid on everything. Like this whole ruse that he's put up is done. So the next morning they get up to leave and probably 15 or so or 20 people are going to leave with the congressman that have kind of voluntarily said they want to leave. Richard Jefferson, nowhere to be found. Yeah, and the the night before... I think when the congressman stood up and said that and Jim knew that Richard Jefferson was kind of uh, kind of the trigger for, for that statement occurring, he had a few choice words for Richard Jefferson, including referring to him as a, a word that rhymes with maggot <laughs> on multiple occasions. Which, again, totally fine, apparently, in 1980 on TV. Apparently so. So anyway, get so, on to so the, anyways, the next day because we're, we're Richard, day now. Unfortunately, Richard Jefferson was put back in the coffin isolation chamber by the security guards overnight because they didn't want him to leave. This guy's had a rough run. <laughs> he had to go in there for five minutes before he got out. <laughs> he had to take on Shayna Baszler. <laughs> and then she choked him out. <laughs> there was actually four coffins and they'd light up in the sequence. <laughs> 
So the congressman departs seemingly without incident. Well, then one of uh, Jim Jones's aides runs up to him and is like, I can't believe you're letting these people leave. Well, Jim Jones at this point is like, he's despondent. He's just like, we're done. You know, when they get out of here, it's over. And this guy's like, I can stop this. And Jim Jones is like, I can't tell you to do that, but I won't stop you from doing it. Well, this guy gets a machine gun and some guys and they go off in pursuit of the congressman. I did not know this part of the story. I, my mind was blown by this. So, so before, one thing that they didn't include was um, the congressman was not injured, but he, they got up that morning, they rounded up the people that wanted to leave. Um, and there How was many one, people? Yeah, 12 uh, or 15 or 20 probably, at yeah. least in the movie. That's what it was. No, I think that was about the same in real life as well. Um, but one of the members of the congregation was upset at what he was doing, taking people and what, you know, he's big government guy going to come in and try to take this over and tried to attack the congressman with a knife and someone else stopped him before he like stabbed him. And that's when the congressman was basically like, all right, that's it. I'm we good. are definitely out of here. We're shipping out. So in the movie, and I'm assuming this is what happened. I don't know why they would embellish this detail. Like when they get back to the airstrip, the, the, uh, pursuers from the cult catch up with their machine guns and they pretty much cut everybody down at the airport. Congressman, his aide, the family members, uh, looked like they annihilated everybody with gunfire. That was a little bit, no, they really rolled up and just started firing off at him. And the Congressman was killed. There were like three or four members of the press that were killed. Um, I think a couple of the defectors from the, from the people's temple were shot and killed as well. There were some people that were shot that did survive. There were also three or four people, I think that ran off into the jungle and were ultimately just found somewhere in the jungle. Cause they were too scared to come back out. Cause they didn't know what was going to, what was going to happen to them. The one thing they left out. So they rolled up on that tractor and they started shooting at him. Well, the, one of the Cessna planes that was on the airstrip, they had, some people had already boarded it including one guy who was posing as a defector but was actually armed. And when those people boarded the plane, he pulled out his gun and shot people that had already boarded one of the planes. And he uh, actually didn't kill anybody, as I recall. He just wounded them. But he ended up being the only person who was actually criminally prosecuted for any of this wow. because everybody else died that day. Wow. I did not. Yeah, that's it. That's amazing detail. I didn't know. Back at the camp, they've now enacted the, uh, you know, the final plan. They uh, they called the family meeting, as we might say. They they literally did. He he called his family. He said, "Family, I need you to come to the pavilion." So Doctor Conrad Murray is busily doctoring the Kool Aid with all of his drugs. Jim's on the microphone giving this bizarre rambling speech about it's going to be over soon. Everybody get up here. The CIA's coming. And he's just, he's just rambling on. Well, then the movie just starts showing people, you know, starting to drink the Kool-Aid and falling out. Um, occasionally it'll show somebody try to escape or run off and they're getting gunned down. And Jim's just talking the whole time. He's just, he's just sitting kind of slumped in his chair. He's holding the microphone. And he's just giving this rambling sermon and then it's getting quieter and quieter as more people are dying and the screaming and the gunshots are subsiding. And then the people that were the security guards take the Kool-Aid and they go down. And then his right-hand people take the Kool-Aid and they go down. Well, in the meantime, 
a member of the communities busted Richard Jefferson out and they head off the other direction. So I think he gets out and goes yeah, on to have a pretty successful career as a journey six man. They, they really, yeah, they really got away. They did get away. And, uh, and then, and then it's down to this, the eerie end of the film where everyone's dead. It's completely quiet and he's just talking and talking. And then you just hear the single gunshot and he slumps forward in the chair and we go to the credits. And uh, I was going to have you listen to, because they found, I mean, obviously uh, this stuff was broadcast there. It was, his sermons and stuff were recorded. Yes. And they've, the FBI found the, I mean, the, the, what they call the Jonestown death tape, which is the last 45 minutes before the recording was shut off. And then he, he shot himself and you can, it's not hard to access. You can listen to it, but I was going to have you listen to that. But from the point he calls him to the pavilion, I don't think it's word for word, but it's pretty close to exactly what was said on that tape. Wow. So they, like, they went with the historically accurate material. The things he said about family, I've failed you, and this is the end, and we have no other choice. The lady stands up that's always been with him, but she's like, hey, let's just think this out. Can we still, can the Russians help us? Because that was one thing they were trying to do, was they were trying to end up in Russia, where they would be protected under the communist regime forever and out of the grasp of the U.S., but the Russians wouldn't take them. Right. And... That lady was like, yeah, I think there's still a lot of good people around here. There's a lot of good things we can do. We we don't need to die. And he had them all convinced that, no, it's too late because the congressman's dead and they're going to be in here within minutes and they're going to parachute in here and they're going to shoot us and they're going to kill the children. They're going to torture the children and dying is the better alternative at this point. Well, it's also, I mean, it's too late because... I mean, if you mix up a batch of Kool-Aid and then it sits for a few days, like it's, it's just go not. Bad. Yeah, it's just not as good. It's just not I mean, as good. What tasty. a waste! But they they showed even in the the miniseries the people that resisted, and where they would hold them down and just inject it in them if they wouldn't drink it. They didn't really show because, like with the infants and small children, they would just kind of shoot it in a syringe just into their mouth. They didn't really show that, but they definitely showed people carrying babies as they were walking up towards the line. It's some messed up stuff. No, it was uh, it was quite shocking at the end, and, and it's funny because they would, you know, they were cool showing all that stuff, but then you know, oh my gosh, like you know, any kind of sexual thing or any kind of gay gayness, like it was, it was frowned upon in 1980. Yes. Oh, but anyways, I uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I highly recommend it. It's available on YouTube. Do you uh, do you want to know why Jim Jones, his youngest son, that he had kind of trapped down there, was part of the group that was poisoned, but he had three other sons that uh, survived, and they survived because they were playing on the People's Temple basketball team against the Guyanese national team that day. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. That's where they were. But Richard they, Jefferson wasn't. Down. No, I guess he wasn't, uh, he wasn't good enough. Wow. Who knew? And there was, there was other offshoot stories of um, uh, one of the guys, I can't remember which one it was, who... 
I think he had left, but then he knew maybe he survived the shooting at the airport. So he knew what, because he had a connection to the people's temple. So he knew what was about to go down because they had rehearsed it before, but he was trying to leave, but his wife and his kids stayed back behind. But after the shooting, he made his way back to the whatever and he got back, but he, he didn't get close enough where any of the guards saw him or anything like that. But he got back just in time to, to see the people you know, poisoning themselves, and he couldn't do anything about it. And unfortunately, he got there just in time to see his own wife poison their child oh and then take gosh. the poison herself. Oh, my gosh. That's like the last thing he saw there before he got the F out of there. A shocking So an, up, an uplifting story for... Uh, Nonetheless... For your spring break yes. and your Corona COVID nineteen. Well, it's actually funny. Year. I just uh, I just got an alert on my phone that I'm going to have to uh, we're going to have to end the podcast, gentlemen. Uh, the COVID committee is calling an emergency call right now. So, wow, yours, the COVID committee. Yes, I'm on the COVID committee, and yours truly is going to have to to sign off for tonight while I go fight COVID for the good of uh, of our community. Good luck, sir, and be sure to print off all the necessary documents for everybody. 